Hey, it's me, Chance, with Punk Journalism, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Scott Denning of the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at CSU. Professor Denning educates me on the misconceptions of the framing of climate change in the media, the outlook for the future, and the urgency of addressing climate change. Pardon my less-than-ideal audio quality on this one. I was snowed in, out of town, and I had to make do. I've got a lot of sexy interviews in the coming month that I'll be working on. The first of those is going to be with Dr. John Arden. He's the author of America's Meltdown, Lowest Common Denominator Society. He published that book all the way back in 2003, and he's agreed to do one episode per chapter where we're going to compare and contrast what he wrote in 2003 compared to where we are today, 16 years later. So that's going to be really, really interesting, and I'm really excited about that. Next is going to be Squeaky Springs. She's the founder of Punk Rock Burlesque, a burlesque troupe out of Denver, and a former exotic dancer. After that, I'm going to be talking to Aaron James. He's a professor of philosophy at uh, UC Irvine in California. He's the author of Assholes, a Theory. Finally, I'm going to be talking to Michael Kimmel, the author of Angry White Men, American Masculinity at the End of an Era. I came across Dr. Kimmel while I was working on a blog called You Can't Joke About Anything Anymore, about how you allegedly we can't joke about anything anymore because everybody gets so offended by everything. So we're going to be digging into that. Lastly, I just want to make sure that you know where to follow me so you can stay up to date with everything that I'm working on. Facebook.com slash punk journalism, Twitter.com slash punk journalism, Instagram.com slash punk underscore journalism. And you can see everything that I've done up to this point by going to punk-journalism.com. Please also subscribe to iTunes and you can find me there and look me up if you appreciate what I'm doing. All that I ask is that you give me a positive review there. You can also find everything that I've done on YouTube, so be sure to subscribe there as well. Tell me a little bit about your research, what your career mostly is focused on, especially as it relates to climate change. Sure. Well, I am an atmospheric scientist. Um, I had an undergraduate degree in geology. Um, I worked for a while in the oil industry in the 1980s, uh, went back to graduate school in atmospheric science, and I've been doing sort of global climate, global change research uh, since the early 90s. Um, my research is primarily about what happens to the CO2 from the atmosphere after we put it up there. So, you know, when you burn carbon, you make carbon dioxide, and then um, some of that carbon dioxide dissolves into the oceans, and a lot of it is taken up by plants, but virtually all the CO2 taken up by plants gets uh, returned back to the atmosphere when the plants die and decompose. Um, except for a tiny residual that accumulates in, in the soils and plants. And um, I use tiny variations in atmospheric CO2 to trace the pathways of, of CO2 through the Earth system. And what have you found from that research over the years? What have been your more significant findings? Well, uh, so the surprise to everybody, um, I didn't really discover this, but uh, the, the, the big surprise that most people don't know is that taken all together across the whole world, plants are growing faster than they're dying. That's good news. Um, uh, yeah, it's good news. It, it, it removes about 25% of all the CO2 from fossil fuel. 
Um, and that's primarily happening through uh, regrowing forests in the developed world, think like, you know, New England uh, didn't used to have any forest and now like every molecule of wood in Vermont um, used to be a CO2 molecule. Also, warming climate is driving um, tree line up into the Arctic. And so you've got woody plants where there used to be only little herbaceous tundra plants. Um, and it, it probably not going to last this this uh, you know you can grow plants faster than they die for a while but pretty soon you got more dead plants and then you've got more co2 so it's sort of a transient um, and that's that's what my career has really been okay. mostly about so when you say that it's not something that you expect to last is it like a cyclical well, sort of thing or no i mean you, you uh you know, th think of um, growing your garden or, or uh, you know, potted plants or something like that. You, you can grow them um, faster than they're dying, but eventually you've got more old plants than you have young plants, and then they're dying faster than they're growing. I mean, there's only, uh, you know, I hate to break this to you, but everything grows old and dies, um, and that goes for plants as well as, as uh, animals and people. Okay. And you would attribute this to a, a warming and climate? Well, some of it is probably due to the CO2 itself, the fact that, you know, plants eat CO2 for a living, and so you give them more CO2 and they grow faster. Um, I, I sometimes joke that it's like the Girl Scout cookies theory of dieting. If there are more, if there are Girl Scout cookies in my house, I gain weight. Um, and, and similarly, the, the biosphere as a whole has been gaining weight um, since, since we've been able to measure it. Um, and it's also due to historical land use. You know, our ancestors cut down a whole bunch of trees in the New World, and then um, their great-grandchildren lost the family farm, moved to town, got jobs in video stores or whatever, and those forests have grown back in places like New England and Western Europe. Um, and part of it is due to warming. The fact that the, there's, you know, half again as many frost-free days up in the Arctic as there used to be, um, so you can grow woody shrubs and trees in places that didn't used to be able to support. Okay. And, and like the video store, which is now obsolete, that, that's also a, a, uh, <laughs> well, an so example of what you're talking about. People are working at Amazon. I, I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, I'm a layman on this, this subject matter. Would it be safe to say, when I hear you describe this, it sounds like almost a silver lining to, to climate change right now, and that's what you're describing, and it's almost, it's like, you, you mentioned that it, it's likely temporary that, that this is going to occur. Is it kind of like a, a deceptive sort of... I don't think it's, I mean, it's surprising. I, I think, you know, 50 years ago when... Um, people started measuring this stuff, they did not expect to find this. Um, I would also uh, caution you that I'm talking about 25% of the fossil fuel emissions, which means that, you know, a whole bunch of the fossil fuel emissions just accumulate in the atmosphere. And so the CO2 keeps going up and up and up. It's just not going up as fast as it would otherwise have been going up if the plants and, and soils weren't um, getting heavier. There's no doubt that setting carbon on fire makes CO2 and adding CO2 to the atmosphere makes it trap heat yeah. and that causes warming and climate change is proceeding um, very quickly, but it would be even worse if the um, 
if the global biosphere weren't responding in the way that it is. I see. When you talk about climate change and, and the urgency of it, uh, you get a lot of people who are, are kind of dismissive of the whole idea uh, because they just say, well, climate change comes in cycles. Over the course of millennia, it's, it's, there's ebbs and flows, and, and this is just a natural cycle that we're in right now. So you're asking me about uh, climate has changed all the time, so what's the big deal? I'm not making that argument. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, so so there's you know there's a lot of truth to this. Uh, there there has been ginormous climate change over geologic time, but it's not millennia. It's tens of thousands of millennia. Um, it, it's you know on the order of uh, you know hundreds of millions of years. Things get warmer and cooler, and then only recently in the geologic past, just just for the last couple of million years. Um, there have been ice ages that have come and gone about every 100,000 years. So, so um, I know this is a little hard to swallow or get your head around, but, but try to imagine that sort of uh, on a time scale of, of a half a billion years, there's been these sort of slow ebbs and flows that you're talking about. And then only very recently, just a geologic you know, blink of the eye ago, we started having these 100,000 year cycles of, of cold and warm. Um, but even 100,000 years is a long time, right? That's, that's not, not the kind of climate change that we're talking about on this podcast. That's not the kind of thing that um, affects the value of your retirement plan or your children's uh, prosperity. That, that's something that happens over you know, many, many thousands of generations. The last great global warming started about 18,000 years ago, and it took 100 centuries to warm the world up by about five degrees Celsius. So, you know, do, do the math, that's um, 0.05 degrees per century. Um, if that were happening, that, that would be um, amazing. That would be like the, the last great global warming. But what we're having is 100 times that fast, right? We're talking about five degrees in a century, not five degrees in 10,000 years. Um, what what we're talking about when we talk about fossil fuels and uh, you know modern climate change is a completely different time scale. It's a human time scale. It's something that happens in one person's lifetime. Um, it's something that has the potential to cause incredible economic harm to us, to our children, to our children's children. Um, and and yes, eventually in 10,000 generations, it's going to cool off. Um, but I, I don't have that long to wait, right? <laughs> right. Um, my, my, my kids are going to be long gone in 10,000 generations. I'm, I'm more worried about what happens in one or two generations. Yeah. So, so <laughs> is it safe to say then, if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, that 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 argument of it's not a man-made issue because it you know climate change is cyclical and we're just in a new cycle this is obviously if you, if you correlate the timing that this has happened to the amount of time that we've been using fossil fuel fuels that it is a man-made issue so so um i'm going to push back on the word correlation there uh this is another very common popular misconception that our um our understanding of the cause and effect here is based on correlation so so the the story that you're telling which many many people uh, have in their minds is that first it got warm and then we wondered why and we noticed the co2 was going up and we did a correlation mm -hmm. and there, there were 
closely correlated, and they are closely correlated, but, but that's not at all how we figured this out. In fact, um, we figured it out 160 years ago, um, long before the warming happened. Um, and, and the way we figured it out was to put CO2 in glass flasks, and I shouldn't say we, right? This is um, people at the time of, of like when Abraham Lincoln was president, put, put CO2 in glass flasks and they shined um, light of different colors through it and they found that it was absorbing the outgoing heat from the earth and they published all these papers, honest to God, during the Civil War. Uh, that that showed that if we continued to burn a lot of coal, we're going to warm up the world. So um, then, by 18 the 1890s, a guy won the Nobel Prize for showing exactly how much the world would warm up if we burn coal. All this happened before it ever got warm. So. Um, since those those early studies, you know, centuries ago, uh, people have measured this effect outdoors. They've measured it from towers and balloons and airplanes and satellites, and we all get exactly the same answer. It's not like we don't understand this and we're, you know, shooting in the dark. Gee, I wonder if it might be CO2. It, it's that we can actually measure the exact amount of heat absorbed by CO2 depending on how much CO2 there is. It's not that it's man-made. It, it's heat-made. You know, when you add heat to the world, it changes its temperature. Just like if you add heat to a pot of water, it'll warm up. Um, it, it's not a mystery. When the sun comes up in the morning and it beats down on the ground, the, the ground warms up. And when you put extra heat into the world, it warms up. And, and we're absolutely certain about that. That's something that even I can understand with my barely passing meteorology. So, like I said, I'm no authority on climate change. And I've never been, I've never had a, a natural inclination for any of the STEM subjects, unfortunately. And uh, in college, I took meteorology, and I don't know how I even passed that class. I just got by on the skin of my teeth. I still found it, as much as I could comprehend, I found it very interesting. But uh, it's just never been my my strong subject. And I believe that when matters are outside of an, or an ordinary person's expertise, the most humble thing to do is often defer to experts such as yourself, scientists like you who spend their lives researching very rigorously, um, as opposed to, you know, taking the uh, kind of being more attracted to to pundits and talking heads who who editorialize this kind of, you know, controversial subject matter on the subject of climate change last year around this time. The uh, United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reported that the world's leading climate scientists have warned that there's only a dozen years for global warming to be kept at a maximum of 1.5 degrees Celsius, beyond which even a half degree will significantly worsen the risks of droughts, floods, extreme heat, and poverty for hundreds of millions of people. So what are your thoughts on that? Are we, are we past the point of no return? Is it a bleak outlook? Well, um, so I guess uh, I would um, be kind of careful how you um, how you interpret the the IPCC report, the 1.5 degree report that you're quoting mm -hmm. here. Um, yeah, you know, it's a great big thick report, and it gets uh, distilled uh, and distilled and distilled, and then uh, journalists distill it further and and um, other people distill what the journalists have said, and, and then you get this thing like we've only got 12 years yet left before something terrible happens. Mm -hmm. so, so that's not exactly right. Um, what what I, I think a better characterization of that report is that 
in order to meet the globally agreed upon objectives of holding CO holding warming to one and a half degrees, um, emissions have to be cut very quickly. And we have to have made um, a lot of progress towards these emission cuts by 2030. Right. So that that's where the tw the 12 years comes from. Is somebody you know subtracted uh, 2030 minus 2018, and they come up with 12 years. And then instead of saying we have to cut emissions a lot between now and then, they say, or it's the end of the world. And you know, it, it's not the end of the world. Um, in fact, the, the whole thing isn't uh, an either or, it's not black and white, it's not like everything is fine and then suddenly you fall off a cliff and it's a disaster. It's progressive, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse until you stop making it worse. And then it doesn't get better for a really, really long time, for like, you know, longer than, than historical time. So um, the, the, the better way to think of this is that uh, the sooner that we start um, really very aggressive emission cuts, the better. Um, and the, uh, the longer we wait, the harder it's going to be for us. And the, the worse the consequences are going to be. And a sort of, um, you know, goalpost is that emissions have to fall by half every decade. So, so, you know, in the next 10 years, uh, global CO2 emissions should fall by half. And in the 10 years following that, they should fall by half again and so forth. Yeah. Um, and that's actually more like to hit a two degree Celsius uh, threshold, which was the, the Paris Agreement. Right. Uh, 196 countries or whatever mm -hmm. it was right. uh, agreed to hold global warming no more than two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And the, the big report last year said, well, um, in that report, they also said, well, we'd rather hold it to one and a half degrees. So there's sort of two things that came out of the report. The, the, the report was commissioned essentially by the governments of the world. Um, do we want to, to shoot for one and a half degrees or are we okay with two degrees? And conclusion number one was, yeah, big difference. One and a half degrees is a lot less damaging than two degrees. And um, one and a half degrees is really hard. It, it means um, very aggressive, very fast cuts in um, global CO2 emissions. Um, what I'm understanding from you is that there's still, we're not to the point of no return as long as we make changes, but I don't really see too many changes being made in the right direction to address that. In fact, well, I, I guess I agree. I agree with you. But, you know, now we're sort of not talking about uh, science or IPCC. We're, we're, we're just two guys talking about the future, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Right. There's there's nothing wrong with that. But, you, you know, uh, I, I would I guess I would caution you that um, there's sort of a, a spectrum here from you said you wanted to um, defer to experts and the, the expertise is is pretty much limited to what I said you know it's much better to hold warming to a lower level it's really hard um, and, and then what you're saying is is I agree with it's like oh crap, we, we got to get right on this and we don't seem to be doing it, right? But that's not so much of an expert, deferring to expertise, sure. that's, that's, that's our opinion and that's fine. We, we get to have our opinion and, and scientists do too, right? We don't have extra um, 
extra rights to our opinions that other people don't have, but neither do we have less right to an opinion than other people have, right? We don't, we don't leave our humanity, our citizenship at the office door when we go in to be a scientist. We, we, we can have opinions just like you can have opinions. Yeah, but I mean, isn't your opinion, it carries a lot more weight just based off of your expertise? Well, that's that's nice of you to say. Um, I, I'm not sure that that uh, the world values my opinion more than it values your opinion, right? In, in politics, we all we all supposedly have the same. Uh, our opinions have the same weight, but but you know now I, I don't mean to get all philosophical on you, but. Um, I guess my opinion as a as a citizen as a person is that yeah it's kind of scary we we ought to be doing this faster um, and the 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 thing that I'm trying to push back on is that in my expert opinion there is not a binary choice it's not like everything's going to be fine and then you've passed a point of no return and then you're screwed I, I just don't think that's the case I think there's a progressive um, worsening of the situation. And unfortunately, um, it doesn't stop when you pass, you know, 2030. It just continues to get worse and worse and worse. So there is no point of no return. There is no sort of, okay, now, now we're screwed. Now we can just, you know, give up and, and cry. No, you, you still actually um, have this urgency, even after 2030, even after 2040. It continues to be um, really urgent that we get very aggressive about, um, about converting the world off of a carbon-based economy um, so that we avoid terrible economic and social and ecological consequences that persist for, you know, dozens of generations after we're gone. Yeah. It, it's kind of worse than in 2030 we're screwed because, you know, we're still trying to avoid getting screwed in 2031 and 2051 and, and 2101. It, it, it just continues to be a challenge. Um, and there's no sort of magical line that once you've crossed it, ah, well, we're done now. Sure. Once we cross into a, th a certain threshold as time progresses and goes faster and faster, we kind of are getting deeper and deeper and deeper in this hole that we're digging ourselves. Yeah, well, my, my guess is we're going to stop digging pretty soon. Um, my, my sincere hope, right? I have children. I, I have kids who are in their 20s. I mean, they're not kids anymore, right? They're, they're young adults. And um, that's not the end of it either, right? There, there, there are going to be future generations that are going to have to suffer for all this. And the sooner we stop digging the hole, um, the, the less deep it's going to be. Sure. So what about last? What are your opinions or your thoughts as far as last week at a, at a natural gas conference on October 23rd, the president said that the U.S. would start the process to formally withdraw from the 2015 climate agreement. Well, I think it's a terrible mistake. Um, luckily, there's, you know, 193 other countries that are still in it. And, um, you know, fewer than 5% of humanity lives in our country. Um, and virtually all of the growth in emissions, the growth in, in uh, burning of fossil fuel happens in the developing world, not the developed exactly, world. So, yeah. you know, there, um, it, it's, as I said, I think a terrible mistake that uh, our country is, is pulling out of this 
uh, agreement that was that was difficult to get. Um, but there it is. Um, I still have hope that as the hole gets deeper, um, the vast majority of people who find themselves in that hole will stop digging the hole deeper and um, perhaps even start filling it back in. Uh, and my guess is that um, that the U.S. will will stop digging the hole as well. I mean, I I, I see it as a kind of um, temporary problem in our politics. Uh, but again, you know, this is my political opinion. It's not, not my expertise that says that. I, I, I am not an expert on international negotiation or uh, treaties or politics. I, I know no more about that than, in fact, I probably know less about that than other people. Well, and it's unfortunate because you you have mentioned a couple of times that it's it's a political issue and it doesn't seem like something that necessarily ought to be a political issue. But it's it's one of those things that in our polarized political climate, especially in the past 15 or, or so years, usually one side will disagree with the other simply out of principle for no other reason. And and in, in my opinion, in my personal perspective, it seems like such a blatant case of turning a blind eye to such a serious issue just for the sake of disagreement for disagreement's sake. And yeah, it seems kind of nuts. I, I have to agree. And, and you know, uh, like I said, not my scientific opinion, but but my personal feeling is that um, it's kind of like, you know, we're in a speeding car and we've um, long passed the sign that said bridge out. And now we're sort of um, crashing through wooden barriers left and right. And, uh, you know, the obvious thing to do is to hit the brake. But um, there's some guy sitting in the passenger seat that says, nah, there's there's no bridge out. The bridge is fine. Just keep going. <laughs> when the bridge is clearly out, yeah. Yeah, so, it's just nuts. Yeah, and so that, I guess, when I, I go back to... It's been been incorrectly framed by the media saying that 2030 is is kind of the point of no return. And I've I've seen it framed that way as well. Uh, but I guess still what is, is concerning to me is this is a quote from uh, the president last week when when he decided to pull out of the agreement. He said that it would hurt the competitiveness of the United States if we if we continue to stay as a part of the agreement. And I think that that is. That is sort of this libertarian idea that government never does anything right. So it should be left up to the free market to tackle this issue and, you know, based off of competition. Uh, but what stopped them from doing that at this point? What's what stopped them from from using free market capitalism to be competitive in ways that they can innovate and, and attack this this global issue? Yeah, I find that to be to be very very strange too. Yeah, yeah. and it, I I would almost say that it's it's almost fair to say that because of free market capitalism, we found us in in this situ ourselves in this situation because things like like uh, coal and and fossil fuels and plastic and styrofoam they're easy and they're convenient and they're cheap to produce and, and to use. And and I, I kind of what I hope is that something like the Green New Deal can be looked at as a solution that can be used to to encourage people in the you know in the sort of economy that we have thrived in up to this point to be competitive by creating green green jobs and green energy and 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 more opportunities in that realm yeah i i guess i i don't yeah you know not an economist not not a political expert but you know i think of it more like um 
the development of uh, public infrastructure back 100 years ago, right? Um, so, so pe people of my grandparents' generation um, spent an unbelievable amount of money digging up every street in New York and Paris and London and laying sewer pipes and then knocking out tenement walls 20 stories high and putting in hot and cold running water and knocking out all the internal uh, walls in their apartments and putting in toilets and sinks and showers. It's, it's just staggering the amount of money people put into that. If you try to do that today, you know, at union wages for the labor, um, it, it's just trillions and trillions of dollars worth of infrastructure. And then when they were done, with that they immediately went to like um rural electrification right so, so running separate little copper wires to every house in nebraska and wyoming um oh my gosh imagine what that would cost if you hired an electrician to do that right um, yeah. and, and and uh and then you know the world war ii or uh interstate highway systems and then in, in, in my generation it was um, PCs, right? How many? A billion PCs on every desk in every office in the world at, at like $3,000 a piece. Um, that's just trillions and trillions of dollars. And we were done with that. We did uh, the internet. And we done with the internet. We did cell phones. And, and so this is just what we've always done is replaced technologies that were working okay with new technologies that cost way more, right? It, 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 you think a car is cheaper than a horse? No way. You think, uh, you, you know, um, a toilet on, on the 47th floor is cheaper than an outhouse? No way. But It's but more convenient. We, and there's always a cost of convenience. And, and it's better. It's just flat out better, right? So my cell phone bill is 10 times the, the uh, landline bill that I had 30 years ago. And I'm completely fine with paying 10 times as much for telephones as I used to be, because it's better. Um, and yeah, you know, when we switch from the 19th century technology of setting stuff on fire uh, to keep warm to a 21st century technology that's all about sort of the internet of electrons, it's going to be better. Um, that's that's what it takes to stop digging the hole. And whether it takes a Green New Deal to do that or unbridled capitalism to do that, I, I don't know what the policies are, but it's not qualitatively different than what everybody else has done before is, is to trash perfectly usable old-fashioned stuff like outhouses and horses and buggies and replace them with new stuff that works better at a cost of dozens of trillions of dollars at a time. That, that's normal. That's what our civilization has done every generation since the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And it's not like history stops now, you know, no one will ever get past coal. What a bunch of hooey. That, that just doesn't seem reasonable to me. You know, and, and kind of a, and along those lines in, in, the, uh, in the area where you are in Larimer County, but specifically Weld County, in the past couple of years, there's been this big, you know, a lot of legislation to protect the oil and gas industry yeah, because that's, that's such a, a uh, kind of a boom in Weld County. I think it was last, uh, last year's election, people were voting on some uh, possible restrictions and regulations on oil and gas. And there was a lot of pushback against that, not based on the, on the environmental repercussions, but on the economic repercussions on, you know, look at how many jobs this has created and how many jobs it would destroy if this legislation passed to, to, to regulate oil, the oil and gas market in, in like Greeley and, and those out areas outside of Greeley. And yeah, I guess, you know, not, 
that is very unfortunate and i i think that that's something that should be addressed as far as like the economic reper repercussions that would be you know we would experience because of those job losses but uh in a way like uh, that's just sort of the unfortunate consequence of progress sometimes and i think that's kind of maybe what you're driving at um yeah it's it's you know i kind of like you know equate it to you know one job that also doesn't exist anymore is the guy that resets the bowling pins at the at the bowling alley like you know technology comes along and and hopefully that it creates a new market a new you know a new new industry for people to to move into and can get away from from more archaic industries like that and in fact that's been the case in western civilization since the end of the middle ages right there's always been this sort of churn in in the world economy uh where some professions and jobs uh, get get lost, and new ones are created. And over time, there's there's always been more on the new creation of jobs than the old that were lost. Let me let me push back on something that you said though, because um, you're framing it, or you're actually just sort of repeating a framing that um, we're talking about the environment versus jobs and the economy. And I think that a much more realistic framing of this is that it's the economy versus the economy. So the, 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 what I was talking about earlier about digging a hole, you, you know, uh, the hole that I'm talking about being dug is, is not just the environment in little air quotes. It, it's more like the, um, the, the prosperity and flourishing of people around the world um, what what you're really talking about is protecting a tiny number of jobs right. and economically penalizing billions and billions of people for that, right? And, and it's even more than billions because it's everybody who hasn't been born yet out for dozens of generations. So it's like, okay, we're going to protect, you know, a handful of jobs in Larimer, in, uh, in Weld County at the expense of everybody else's jobs and, and you know, the, the value of your home and you know, crashing your 401k and everybody else loses loses everything. Come on, that, that's not a real realistic thing to, to choose. Um, and I think that uh, it, it is true that uh, when big changes happen, like you said, the bowling pin guy or, you know, the video, the people, that, the video store, the people that install um, outhouses or the people that manufactured chamber pots and, you know, were put out of business by the plumbers. Um, and we wouldn't say that that was a, a, a net negative for the economy, right? P people are better off because of indoor plumbing. And um, e even if somebody had to get a new job because there was no more market for chamber pots, we're still better off with indoor plumbing. You know, electric lights, you know, put, put the candle manufacturers out of business. Mm -hmm. that's, that's just the way capitalism works is that when, when, when progress happens, um, jobs change. It isn't that there are fewer of them, it's that they're different. And I think that that's where we've gotten stymied right now, as far as is, you know, this disagreement of does, you know, is climate change even an issue right now? You know, is it worth putting the economy on hold or in precarious positions to, to no, address climate change? it's worth growing change? to economy. It's, it's worth moving into the future and, and avoiding terrible economic harm because we know better. Right. But I think that the problem that we've been facing for the last decade or decade and a half is that to in order to even make those economical changes and in order to even say, you know, like we need to move on from 
from protecting the oil and gas industry so much, you first have to even accept that climate change is an issue at all. Because if you don't accept it, you're not going to you're not going to uh, put the oil and gas industry, for example, in in dire circumstances. You're going to say you're going to fight for that if you don't now even. That, now, yeah. Now, now you're stepping into my into my expertise. It, it's just. It's just not um, viable to say is climate change a thing at all. That, that's sorry, but that that's just not on the menu. I mean, it, it's um, it is an issue. It's a progressive issue. It's going to get worse and worse and worse until we stop making it at first, and then it's not going to get better. And if we push it far enough, it's going to destroy our livelihoods and our quality of life. So so. Given that, um, what are you going to do? You're going to drive off the cliff or are you going to hit the brakes? And that's a uh, there's a communication concept that that I came across that actually a friend of mine that's at CSU who's currently pursuing his his uh, Ph.D. in the in the journalism department. He actually turned me on to this idea of it's called rational ignorance. It's uh, <laughs> defined as intentionally choosing to remain uninformed on a topic because the, the cost of acquiring the information is greater than the estimated potential benefits. Learning and understanding information can take time, energy, and or capital, and comes at the cost of redirecting those resources from elsewhere. Even when the information can be of some value, it must be worth the cost. Ultimately, it's a cost-benefit situation. So I think that in the case of climate change, you can kind of combine this concept with Another one called cognitive dissonance, which is being presented with new information that conflicts with your pre-existing beliefs, and it creates a conflicts of ideas and perceptions. And uh, I think as far as rational ignorance are, is concerned, people are so invested in, in believing or not believing in one or the other, climate change exists or it doesn't. And to change that position requires for an entire lifestyle shift, if you believe that there are repercussions in climate change, then your you know your consciousness or your your better judgment is going to tell you that you need to make those lifestyle changes. And a lot of research shows that people are are very very stubborn when it comes to making big changes, and they generally have to be very incremental, very small changes, working up to something larger, like you know like something like banning plastic straws. So. There's a bunch of stuff there. Um, uh, for, first of all, I, I think um, let, let's think about the cognitive dissonance uh, argument or the rational ignorance argument as opposed to uh, as applied to something like um, venting your uh, furnace or hot water heater in your house, right? Science says that if you don't vent this stuff, um, the carbon monoxide is going to build up in your house and it's going to kill you. Um, now, sure, it would probably be more convenient to not run that vent pipe up to the roof. Um, it, it, it's a pain in the butt. You got to like cut through the drywall. You got to cut through the through the roof. You got to patch the leaks so that the rain doesn't get in. Um, but gosh, if you don't do it, you're going to die. Um, or like the the software problem on the 737 Max, right? The science says the um, there's a bad interaction between that software and the pilots that uh, in two occasions so far has led to hundreds of deaths when airplanes fall out of the sky. Um, we've decided to ground the airplanes, even though there's a tremendous amount of dislocation and inconvenience to hundreds of thousands of people whose flights get rescheduled. 
um, you know, billion dollar losses to airlines, uh, Boeing stock has tanked, it's, it's terrible. Um, but you know, would, would you get on that airplane? Uh, knowing in your um, rational ignorance that it's more convenient to fly on this plane that's gonna fall out of the sky? I, I don't think so. Um, this is like that. Uh, so so let, then let me respond to this business about straws. Um, if all of us in the developed world um, were to do really drastic things like never fly in airplanes, uh, always ride our bikes, um, you know, take public transportation, uh, keep our heat low in the winter and never use air conditioning in the summer and blah, 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 all these lifestyle changes. Um, it, it's not even close to being enough to stop digging that hole. The, the, the hole that we're digging globally in terms of pumping CO2 into the atmosphere uh, it is a global thing. It, it isn't just you, it isn't your straws, it isn't your showers. Um, it's everybody on earth, all seven and a half billion of us are setting stuff on fire and we have to stop. Mm -hmm. We have to stop completely. It, it isn't enough to cut your emissions by half uh, when there's billions and billions of other people in the world who, who actually don't have enough energy and they're going to raise their emissions. What we have to do is replace burning stuff with other kinds of energy. And that means that when we're done with that, you still get to travel, you still get to be warm, you still get to, to, to you know, have a decent lifestyle. In fact, people's lifestyles will be better when we're done than, than now, uh, because billions and billions of people don't have enough food, they don't have fresh drinking water, they don't have electricity. Those people are going to have a much, much better life and they're going to do it without setting stuff on fire. If you're trying to solve it with, with plastic straws, you're just part of digging the hole. I mean, we, we have to stop setting carbon on fire everywhere, and you're not going to do that by lifestyle changes. You're going to have to do that by a fundamental replacement of the sources of energy that we use to power global society. And this is what sort of I was concerned about when you had said that by 2030 that's not we're not necessarily going to have runaway climate change that's going to be unsolvable but what I'm hearing now is you know we have to have drastic changes set in place and just because but not lifestyle changes more, more like energy uh, generation and storage and transmission so do you so I, I think it's an infrastructure thing not a lifestyle okay thing. all right I, I see so do you think that that's feasible by the year 2030 and beyond like I think from an economic uh, and technical point of view it is absolutely feasible I, I think there's no question that from like an engineering point of view, you could you could do that by 2030. You, you could cut uh, global emissions in half by 2030 using technologies that we already have. We don't have to invent anything new. Uh, we just have to deploy these technologies at a huge, uh, you know, in a huge effort. Yeah. Economically, it is affordable, uh, and study after study after study shows that doing that is cheaper than not doing that because the, the economic consequences of failure are much, much worse than the economic costs of success. Um, the trouble is all political uh, and, and, you know, how people make decisions. And that's the part that's outside my, my expertise. Um, I, I don't think either you or I knows what is politically doable or what the best ways to get stuff done politically are. Um, but I, uh, 
I suspect, and, and it's really just maybe more hope than anything else, that as the consequences come more and more into focus, uh, and it becomes more and more obvious that the economic harm that we incur by failing to solve this problem is much greater than the economic cost of solving it, um, we will make the right decision in our own self-interest uh, because we value comfort and prosperity. Sure. So when you say that it's, it's not necessarily a lifestyle change, it's, uh, it's more infrastructure. And, you know, I've, I've seen, uh, in fact, I'm looking right now at, at a graph that shows that the top 20 companies in the world have contributed over half of the carbon emissions since 1965. And, you know, I see, I look at a list of, of those top 20 industries right now, but what, what do we do as, as individuals to address this? What can we do at the individual level? Well, of, of course there are things that we can do. Um, and I, I guess, um, to some degree, all of us value a, a feeling of agency, right? A feeling like we, we're doing something. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I wear sweaters in the winter and I, um, I bought solar panels and I have an electric car and, um, you know, I suppose you want to do the, the cheapest things that's almost certainly um, things like insulation, right? It's not very sexy, but um, much bigger impact if you can insulate your, uh, your attic compared to buying solar panels. Um, you know, you can ride your bike to work, you can take the bus, you can um, turn down the thermostat, you can uh, turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth, you can avoid plastic straws. But, but these are sort of symbolic gestures out at the margins. And at, at the same time that we do all of that, um, if we don't simultaneously insist on an energy economy that doesn't involve combustion, then uh, we, we're not going to solve the problem. We're, we're going to have to do this sooner or later um, to avoid grievous avoidable economic harm. Isn't it a good thing to, though, to introduce those incrementally to, to kind of bring people to you know, these adjustments very slowly so that they don't, they're not overwhelmed by you know, big infrastructural changes? Well, I, I'm not sure. I, 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 this feels like a reach to me. I, I mean, like I said, it's not my expertise. Um, you're asking about the psychology of politics. Oh my gosh, that, that is so outside my, my expertise. Um, but I, I personally think that if, uh, for example, um, my city has voted to um, to replace our electrical power with 100% carbon-free electricity by 2030. Um, that's a huge infrastructure change. It, it, we've already gone from 80% coal in our electrical system to 50% coal. And by 2022, so just a couple of years from now, uh, we're gonna be down to 30% coal. So these are huge changes in our energy system. Um, they are not, I think, requiring um, any kind of big sacrifice to people's lifestyle. I mean, you still be able to flip a light switch and, and get a light or, um, you know, get on the Internet and, um, and stream Netflix. Um, I think that those are much, much more effective than banning plastic straws. 
and they don't rub people the wrong way in, in the way that right. any plastics do. So I, I don't really buy the idea that it, let's start with straws and, you know, someday we'll get to, um, you know, dilithium crystals. It just seems crazy. And uh, yeah, and I agree with that. And not to sound redundant, but and, and I know this, again, is probably outside of your your normal area of expertise. But what do you think has been the holdup? Because these all sound like viable, feasible things to do and common sense. Why, why isn't it happening? Well, part of it is this thing that you said earlier that, that um, there's an awful lot of people who don't understand the stakes, right? The, the, the media are continuing to frame this as we, we have to like save the polar bears and, and, you know, live in skins or something, you know, banning plastic straws. These are just um, diversions. These are not um, central to the, to the problem or the solutions. Um, and yet so much of the media framing is like that, right? We're going to, we're going to save the rainforest and we're gonna um, have more flowers and and you know if if the framing in pop culture was more like there's this yawning uh, economic disaster that is waiting for your children that is completely avoidable without a lot of sacrifice on your part all you've got to do is dig deep and and build infrastructure the way that we did when we did cell phones or uh, my grandparents did when they did indoor plumbing there would be a lot less resistance to it. What mechanism is going to be have to have to be put in place for it to be reframed in that way? Because I don't know. Maybe, maybe your podcast. I, <laughs> I, I wish I knew. I think that that may be part of it is just people trying to, you know, to get the perspective of people like yourself. And because it is a lot easier to kind of fall into the trap a lot of the times of, of the more sensationalized, the sexy ways to to talk about these subjects and, and like, you know, showing images of a polar bear floating on a, on a, you know, small piece of ice in the middle of nowhere that grabs people a lot easier than, than showing them a lot of data and charts and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm really glad that you educated me on that and it makes a lot of sense. This is just sort of a, a thing that popped, that, that occurred to me just now, as far as like trying to reframe this, this idea and educate people on the urgency of this, how do you think Greta Thunberg's approach was received? Well, she's amazing. Um, you know, uh, she says that autism is her superpower. Um, she she doesn't care what people think of her. She's very upset about um, people destroying the world, and uh, she wants them to stop. And she just goes right ahead and says that. Um, oh my gosh, that, I find that to be incredibly compelling. When she looks into the camera and says, how dare you? How dare you destroy my world? I'm like, whoa, I, I just, there's really no argument against that. Um, I think that for a lot of people who don't understand all the nuance that we've been discussing here on the podcast, um, that's way more effective than some old guy like me with a bunch of graphs, right? I mean, holy mackerel, she's, she's, she's got something there. I hope that it's been effective. I hope that she's just not preaching to the choir. You know, I hope so too, but I, I, I a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, I, I think it's important. If you haven't done so, please visit, uh, go, go on Google and look for Yale Climate Maps or maybe Yale Climate Opinion Maps. These are um, maps of public opinion that's been measured for about 20 years. Um, down to the county level, 
And there are enormous majorities of people that are concerned about this problem. I mean, talking about uh, bigger majorities than almost anything else in public policy, and particularly for the solutions. If, if you ask, uh, do you support a conversion of the economy to renewable energy? Um, I mean, like 75%, something like that, will support it, even majorities of Republicans. This is this is not a controversial thing, and the, the number of people who oppose clean energy is tiny. Um, now, regarding preaching to the choir, um, I think that uh, I, I spoke to a philosopher about a month ago, and she gave me an amazing way of thinking about preaching to the choir. She said, um, sometimes it's really important to preach to the choir because they may not uh, know the words, they may only know the tune, and you have to teach them the words. Um, they, may, uh, they may need a reminder to, uh, to go to choir practice, and it's important that, um, that you enforce the idea that they have to practice. And then thirdly, um, we have to protect the choir from being hypocritical and, and sort of uh, going for the, for the plastic straw ban and forgetting about the fact that we have to stop yeah. setting carbon on fire. So preaching to the choir is not a bad idea. Well, and I mean, you certainly changed my perspective on, on things like that, like the plastic straw ban, and, and these are kind of preconceived notions that I did have. And so, yeah, I agree. I do think it is important to... To, uh, to, to keep an open ear, even if you already do, uh, you know, advocate for that position, you may be, it may be, you know, presented to you in a way that isn't constructive. Like me having the idea of the plastic straw ban, it might just be a, a non-constructive argument because the way that you're putting it, it's not really going to have that deep of an impact. Uh, I think so. The last thing is uh, one one of my uh, listeners had a question for you that posted on social media. So I'll go and throw that your way if that's all right. Uh, sure. Ray asked. Uh, she said, "I'd like to hear his thoughts on the impact of the meat and dairy industry on climate change. If everyone cut their animal products consumption by just fifty percent, rather than just going full vegan, what kind of impact would that have? Would it be enough to have any positive change?" So um, yeah. The um, meat and dairy industry, it depends on how you count. You have to be kind of careful about this. Uh, there's a lot of double counting when people are trying to highlight one um, part of, of the global economy. Uh, food, agriculture in general, including all agriculture, um, anywhere from 15% of current CO2 emissions to 45% of uh, global CO2 emissions, depending on whether you count the fossil fuels that are used to like make fertilizer and transport stuff around. Um, meat and dairy might, might be two thirds of that. So uh, let, let's say 10% of uh, current global fossil fuel emissions. Um, yes, uh, cutting that in half would, would make a much bigger dent than banning plastic straws. Um, on the other hand, you still have to stop setting coal oil and gas on fire, right? So um, every little bit helps. Uh, there is no silver bullet, only silver buckshot. Um, e eating lower on the food chain, uh, reducing our meat consumption. Um, th these are all helpful things. 
um, and yet they don't get you off the hook from um, figuring out a new way to make energy and distribute energy so that everybody has enough energy without setting stuff on fire. All right. Well, great. That's been really enlightening and I really appreciate your time. And um, is there anywhere that you'd like to direct folks to, to check out your work? Sure. I I have a website, um, simpleseriousolvable.org. So I call it the three S's of climate change, but the, the website is, is, is just like that with no uh, punctuation, simpleseriousolvable.org. Excellent. I'll definitely post that on my social media as well. Thank I you. really appreciate your time again. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye.